My name is Brad O'Brien, and I have been brought in as a guest preacher for one day. I want to tell you from the very beginning, this is the first time in my life I feel like I could actually jump from the ground and get the bottom of the net. I mean, I don't know if you can like tell by looking at me. I don't have much of a vertical, maybe like a matchbox. I think I could get a matchbox, but like I feel, man, I just kind of want to jump off of this and like go Shaquille O'Neal on that thing, but uh, I'm not here to do that. Now let's talk uh, very honestly and, and just be upfront about this. When a guest preacher comes in, it can sort of feel like a blind date. You know what I'm saying? Raise your hand, have you ever been on a blind date? Come on guys, like eHarmony counts, like that's a blind date. <laughs> Okay, so on a blind date, especially the first blind date, it could be awkward, right? You don't know if they're going to be weird. You don't know if they're gonna be awkward lulls in conversation. You don't know if you're going to want to excuse yourself from the bathroom and call a girlfriend to come pick you up. Um, and so I realize when someone comes in that is not one of your pastors, um, it can be awkward. What I wanna ask of you this morning is that we fast forward and make this the third date, okay? The third date's a good date. Third date, you feel like, oh, I can tell some of my embarrassing childhood stories and he or she's not going to run away. Oh, I can tell some of that awkward jokes that I've been practicing and I don't have to worry about them leaving me. Uh, and so can we, can we agree, can this be our third date? Come on, that's awkward, okay? You're starting to scare me like we're on our first date. Can this be our third date? Okay, since we're on our third date, I think we need to have a DTR. There's some issues about you I really wanna address. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, so uh, I feel like it'll help you get to know me if I um, introduce you to my family. So I have a picture of my uh, lovely ladies. That's not them. <laughs> Touche, computer girl, touche. <laughs> this is my wife, Jenna Marie. She is a Richmonder, Richmondite. I don't know what that is, but she was born and raised here in Richmond. Uh, and that is my eldest child. Her name is Kalia Grace, and that's our uh, family excursion to Chicago earlier this year. And then eight weeks ago, God graciously blessed us with a new little girl. Here's her picture. Somebody, well, I mean, I don't know if you can see really closely, like, seems like she's got a problem. Like, some people look at that and say, that's a pastor's child, don't worry about it, she'll get over it, like, but other people are like, man, how does she already know how to smoke a joint? Like, no, no that's not, that's not it, that's not, that's a joke, that's not my daughter. Here's my daughter. Her name is Elsa Lou, and uh, she, I didn't think this was possible. My heart's been stolen three times now. I didn't, I didn't think that was possible, but my wife, my eldest daughter, Kalia Grace, and now Elsa Lou, I am wrapped around more little fingers than I can count right now, and so it is a, it's a wonderful time in our household. Um, I wanna share a few things with you about your pastor. I met Pastor Robert um, a few years ago when he was serving in a church in Raleigh. Um, my church in Durham and that church in Raleigh are kind of sister churches working together to start new churches. And as I met Robert, Robert started to share his vision for planting a church here in Richmond. Um, and I was the missions pastor of my church for that time at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina. And, uh, and I, I'll be blatantly honest with you, um, there's a little of a bromance that I have towards Robert. He had me from hello. You know, like, 
looked at him, he kind of had this hipster cowboy kind of thing going on. It's just like, man, I feel like I'm talking to a country rock star kind of thing. And so he had a beard that I could never grow. Like it was just, I mean, it was awesome. But as I got to talk to him and I started listening to him uh, talk, his humility struck me first. Um, His love for the gospel and his love for the city. And so as I stand here, having been on the front end of you guys being something that God had just planted in his heart and his imagination, it brings me great joy to see that that has actually come to fruition here at Redemption Hill. And so some of you guys, I met one of you in the passing of the peace. Some of you are here for the very first time just checking out Redemption Hill because you're moving to town and uh, I want you to be encouraged that you have stumbled upon, by God's grace, a wonderful, wonderful church that I hope you will end up calling family. At the Summit Church, we teach something very clearly and I don't know if Robert picked up on this and, and brought this to Richmond in our partnership with them, but at the Summit Church, we teach that demon possession is often seen by people falling asleep in church church. And so if you see somebody beside you getting a little drowsy this morning, dozing off, I'm the pastor and you have my permission to grab them on the forehead and just scream, demon out. Okay. Nobody will look at you funny. You just go ahead and do that. All right, so if you're a guest here, you uh, don't really know what you walked into. If you've been here for the past couple of weeks, you know exactly what's going on with a series called The Drama of Redemption. The pastor's here walking through the entire Bible in one year. Uh, If you've been here the last four or five weeks, you realize that over the course of five weeks, Pastor Robert has done his best to get you through three chapters, (laughs) beginning with 10 words. But when he brings in the poor preaching pastor guest from Durham, he says, you get one sermon, and in one sermon, you cover seven chapters. It's not fair. I mean, seriously, it's not fair. So we're going to do the best that we can to run through all of this in a sufficient amount of time and uh, get out of here. I'm actually happy to be here because last night, I don't know if you knew this, Duke has a football team. And uh, last night, uh, Duke beat UNC in football for the first time in a long time. And then they actually became bowl eligible. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't remember the last time they had a bowl. But some people said when that happened, there would be a certain biblical place that froze over. And so I thought it was a sign of the apocalypse and everything was ending. And so I, I didn't think I would be here with you. But here we are, and I'm excited to be here. So let's recap what Pastor Robert has done. Not what Pastor Robert has done. What Pastor Robert's told you about. First, God spoke and created everything out of nothing. God spoke, created everything out of nothing. God's original normal was deemed very good and we, mankind, created in his image, were at the pinnacle of that original normal. God's original normal was lost. Adam and Eve sinned, they took the place of God and they stood in God's place and made a decision for themselves to disobey God's command. And then God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 of one that will come that will crush the head of the serpent. And so that's where we pick up and this morning we will cover Genesis 4 through 11 by the grace of God. 
So if you're a Bible drill winner, you should be fine this morning. If not, uh, just hold on and uh, trust that what I say is from the Bible and you can slowly go through it in your Redemption Hill communities. Here's our thesis for this morning. And I borrowed this from my pastor's friend, Tim Keller, who is a pastor in New York City. He says, we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. We're more wicked than we ever believe, but we're more loved and accepted than we ever hoped. And so as we consider the unleashing of sin into God's creation this morning, on one hand, I hope to paint a picture for you that shows you how dark, desperate, depraved, disgusting our sin is. But that's not where I wanna leave you. I want us to end worshiping Jesus so that you will leave knowing that you're more loved and you're more accepted than you could ever, ever imagine. Before we jump into the word of God, let's take some time and pray together. Father, we come this morning confessing that you are God and we are not. We open your word together this morning because from your word we find life. And we ask for you through the power of your Holy Spirit to enlighten us this morning, to open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, so that this morning we might leave this place worshiping Jesus and standing in awe of what he has done for us. God, our sin is more wicked than we actually know. God, in your response to our sin and judgment and wrath, we realize that you are merciful to us. But even in light of that, God, our response is oftentimes to go our own way to disobey you directly, to seek, a, to seek to make a name for ourselves, rather than surrendering to the one name under heaven by which you have given that we might be saved. So this morning as we consider these things, speak through me, work in and through each of us for our good and your glory in Christ's name, amen. Three things we're gonna look at this morning, the sinfulness of sin, the sinfulness of sin, God's response to sin, and man's response to God. We're going to take three scenes, if you will, from these seven chapters, and that's what we'll spend our time looking at this morning. So first, the sinfulness of sin. Turn to Genesis 4 if you're not already there. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on tables here around the gymnasium. Uh, if you don't personally own a Bible, take one of those Bibles home uh, as a gift from Redemption Hill. I didn't just make that up. Robert says it all the time. Uh, and so you can have one of those Bibles as a gift. And so Genesis is the first book. You can probably find it pretty quickly. If you're really cool and you have it on your phone or your iPad, go ahead and show off a little bit and find your way there. Genesis chapter 4 the sinfulness of sin is what we're considering from the story of Cain and Abel. Beginning in verse one, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, 
And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. You, you hear a little sense of hope there? God says, I'm gonna bring a seed from the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. Can you imagine that first pregnancy maybe where there's that anticipation of is this the one that God has promised? And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of all the fatted portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So my routine or rhythm will be that we'll read a passage from each one of these scenes and then we'll discuss that. And by discuss that, I mean I'm gonna talk to you about it. You're kind of a captive audience and there's not much discussion. But here we go. The first thing I want you to pick up from this passage is that God is more concerned with the offerer, the one bringing the offering, than he's actually concerned with the offering itself. It wasn't that Abel's offering was better than Cain's. It wasn't that Abel brought more than Cain. It was all about the heart of the one making the offering. God knew the heart's intentions, and later in the New Testament, I don't know if this is legal in this series, I'm gonna skip ahead the New Testament several times and kinda of ruin some of the story for you. Later in the New Testament, we're told Abel offered his offering in faith. You pick up on some of that with the first fruits. Abel bought, brought the firstborn. There's a sign of faith that he's going to return to the Lord what God had given to him. He offered the fatted portion, the best part. He brought that to the table. He brought that before God. But Cain just brought some of the fruits of the ground. We don't know this, but it sounds and seems as though Cain looked over his harvest and chose what he wanted to bring to the Lord. But Abel brought the first, the best, 
and faith to honor God. The important thing for us to consider because we have a rhythm as God's people of gathering together every Sunday for worship and this is what we must remind ourselves. God is not concerned about you being in this gymnasium singing songs to Jesus and praying prayers. God is totally concerned with your heart as you go about doing that. It's not about being in a rhythm of gathering and gathering and gathering because we're in the Bible Belt and it's what you're supposed to do on a Sunday and people look at you funny if you're out at Ucrops Cafe or Martin's on Sunday morning thinking, oh, they should have been in church. It's not that, it's that we gather as family to celebrate and enjoy grace and God sees the intention of your heart and he knows whether or not the words you just sang were true, were lies, or just hypocrisy. He knows, he sees, and he's much more concerned with us as the ones bringing the offering than the actual offering itself. Take note of God's warning to Cain and us about sin. Sin is crouching at the door, it's desire for you, but you must rule over it. Now the imagery that we get here is of an animal that is crouching and prowling on the hunt. And if you're honest with yourself, many of you kind of view the the animal that's kind of crouching and prowling after you sort of like this. You you kind of think, oh, my sin is like this fat cat. It's just so cute. I'm gonna keep this thing around and it's gonna be my pet and I'm gonna enjoy it every now and then on Friday, Saturday night, not tell anybody. But Peter tells us our enemy is like this. Our enemy is like a lion roaming around waiting to destroy you, not to cuddle up on your leg, not to crawl up in your lap and purr and have you rub it and pet it. It wants to steal from you. It wants to kill you. It wants to destroy you. And God is trying to communicate that to Cain. But Cain, like us, oftentimes does not listen I'm convinced that some of you this morning need to come to a sober realization of what your sin actually is. To confess that, to come forward and speak to one of your pastors whose heart is to demonstrate to you the grace that God has demonstrated to them. Their heart's not to condemn you or to judge you Their heart is to help you as you walk together through this journey, as you run away from your old life and repent and run towards the cross. They want to do that with you. And you've found a safe place for that to happen. So this morning, some of you probably just need to stop listening, need to spend the rest of the time repenting because you know the intentions of your heart as you sang these songs this morning, as you read the word of God corporately together, as you spent time here, you know your heart. And you need to know that God does as well. He created you. You're not hiding anything from him. A pattern is born that shows us a progressive nature to our sin. What begins as a hidden, isolated thought for Cain grows into a grotesque demonstration of wickedness as he commits premeditated murder against his brother. It says that Cain was very angry. I think it's safe to say that all of us understand anger to some degree. Some of you were angry this morning because you got cut off in traffic. 
Some of you are angry this morning because the barista gave you the wrong $5 caffeinated beverage this morning. Some of you are angry by your spouse, the person you're sitting beside. And you're angry at them on your way to church to worship Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Irony. Some of you are angry at your children because they just don't seem to get ready as well on Sunday mornings as they do every other day of the week. We all understand anger. You can identify with that, right? Nod your head, right? You've experienced anger to some degree at some point in your life. But many of you think, and I think, man, my anger isn't going to kill anyone. Okay, I'll be, I'll be blatantly honest. The preacher often comes across as just high and holy and nothing's wrong with him. This is one of the most drastic evidences of God's redemption in my life. From the ages of nine to 21 until I surrendered to Christ, I was an angry individual. And this is one of the most clear demonstrations of God's grace in my life. But still today, I mean, stupid things angered me back then, like my football team wouldn't win or whatever. But now I have more mature things that anger me, like you know, when you're driving and people around you all seem to have failed the driver's test? That angers me. Or when my schedule that I lay out, all of the perfect plans that I have for myself don't really come to fruition. Those things anger me. We understand that, but oftentimes we think, my anger is not going to result to the point of killing anyone. Jesus says otherwise. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus says that you are liable for the same judgment as a murderer if you have ever harbored anger to your brother. And you see that the sin of anger is like a ball within Cain and we are about to watch it explode. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. When sin is conceived, it leads to death, James 1. Cain allows that little ball of anger to explode. He takes the life of one who was created in the image of God. And rather than enjoying the grace that God had given to his parents, Cain seeks not to fulfill the commands, but blatantly breaks them by destroying one of God's image bearers. Cain rebelled and went his own way. Where God had said, be fruitful and multiply, Cain decided to destroy rather than create life. Turn over in your Bibles to chapter four, verse 23. As we begin to work towards our second scene, I want to show you that this progression of sin continues. It's not just something that you see individually in Cain where he maybe selfishly or greedily brings an offering to God and then he's angry at his brother and that anger explodes in wrath and and murder towards his brother. It's something that happens throughout the line of Cain. Genesis 4.23 is about seven generations separated from Cain and we meet a man named Lamech. It says, Lamech said to his wives, Ida and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. You see what happens here. This progression of sin is like a devolution of man, not an evolution of man. It's a moral explosion of failure. Lamech is the first that we find that has broken God's institution of marriage. God defines marriage as a man and a woman, and Lamech turns to be the first known polygamist, taking two wives for himself. And he speaks to them in the first account of poetry, which is a beautiful addition and creation and blessing to our culture. He speaks to them here, and he brags about his wrath. 
that was felt by a young man for wounding or bruising him. And he responded and retaliated by killing him. So you see that this progression of sin continues. It is within this culture that we as followers of Jesus are called into as a kingdom of priests. My wife, Jenna Marie, and I, along with about 20 to 30 others from our church in Raleigh-Durham are going to be uprooting and transplanting our lives from Durham, North Carolina in February to go plant a new church in Baltimore, Maryland. And we're doing that because one of the things as we began to consider needs of cities around our nation, one of the things that stuck out to us was the violent nature of the city of Baltimore. Now you've seen the pictures of my family. It's not like I'm raising up a bunch of warriors for Jesus here. We're not gonna go crazy like Jesus camp or anything like that on Baltimore. I'm raising up some pretty little princesses. And so it's not necessarily we're just gonna go set up shop in the most violent area of Baltimore and just kind of go toe to toe with the gang members or whatever, but it was, in seeing violence, the ninth most violent city in our nation as defined by the Federal Bureau of Investigation just this June, you see that and you realize that's not what the, it's not what God desired. It's not what God designed. For us to turn to someone who's taken something that owns, belongs to us or something we wanted or a corner that we thought was ours and for us to kill them for that for us to rape someone for our desires to be fulfilled, for us to commit violence against our brothers. It was that canvas and that backdrop where we felt God compelling us to put the gospel on display, to say we believe that Jesus can bring shalom in the midst of violence. This culture is what we're called out into as a kingdom of priests. And that progression of sin is, is very clear. We don't just see the unleashing of sin, we also see God's response to sin. So turn over to Genesis chapter six and we're gonna look at the count of Noah. I want you to raise your hand as you're turning your Bible, so you're gonna have to be very uh, creative to do this. Uh, do you have children? If you have children, raise your hand. Okay, put those down. If you have for your own children or another child, if you've ever purchased a Noah's Ark toy, will you raise your hand? Come on. Do you understand how disturbing that is? For you to give a precious child a, a, a floating zoo where a 600-year-old man was stuck with his family and animals and poop and <laughs> grain and the wrath of God that it signifies. My daughter, Kalia Grace, the eldest, the big, as I call her, the big and then the little. Um, the big got a Noah's Ark last Christmas, but it wasn't from her pastor father. It was from my dad, her grandfather. Her pastor gave her the little tyke's nativity scene so that we could experience Jesus, not celebrate the wrath of God. So this Christmas, say no to little tykes, Noah and Ark, okay? <laughs> Genesis 6, five through eight. The Lord saw 
the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Sin is unleashed. It's progressed from Adam and Eve through their children, through their generations, to the point that we get here. We don't know chronologically how long it is that we take to get here, that God looks at creation and says every intention of their heart is evil. Every. That's a bold statement. That's a bold statement. From that momentary sin in the garden to where we are now, you see sin exploding and unleashing like warp speed. But in the midst of that, you can enjoy grace. Look at this, I assume most of you know this story, but I don't want you to miss this pivotal statement, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Grace, for the first time, six chapters, you hear a note of God's unmerited favor towards his children. God extended free grace and salvation to Noah. He chose to preserve a remnant in the midst of his wrath and it was God's grace that initiated all of it. Pastor Robert told you about the promise in Genesis 3.15, the first proclamation of the gospel where God says in the, in the judgment of Adam and Eve's sin that there will be one who is raised up that will crush the head of the serpent. Well, you have Cain and Abel born. Cain kills Abel. So obviously we're not looking to Cain to be the one to bring that about. But we find out that Adam and Eve are given another son named Seth. And you start to trace that line and you see God sovereignly protecting that line that will lead us to the one. We don't know his name yet here, but we know his name now to be Jesus. And you trace this in a few chapters or a few generations after Seth was born, like Cain, you don't get to Lamech who is bragging about his vengeance, you get to Enosh. And it says of Enosh, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, the first account of what we're doing today. And you follow through to a man named Enoch, if you've ever read the genealogies and don't just skip over them and actually count it as you've read that chapter as you read through the Bible. I don't know, I've never done that. I don't know if you've ever done that. But it, there's a pattern, there's a rhythm of this genealogy that so-and-so was born and when he was such an amount of years old, he gave birth to a son or so-and-so and then he lived so-and-so more years and he died. And you go through that, there's a rhythm and a pattern and he died and he died and he died. And if you read the Bible, like Pastor Robert says, as a human being, you come to Enoch and there's something that is difficult to explain because it says this, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Death is not our final word. Death is not the last note. Somehow Enoch found a way back to the tree of life that was in the garden, that was protected by an angel. 
somehow Enoch found a way around death and it was because he walked with God and God took him. He was no more. Death entered God's original normal through sin, but God is still sovereign. The sting of death is not something you have to be afraid of. Now look at God's mercy in the midst of his judgment. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's fine for Noah and the rest of his family. But what about everyone else? We have no ability to comprehend this. I I had the privilege of going and serving um, the Achenese people in Indonesia just six months after the tsunami that hit them and destroyed them and in moments eliminated hundreds of thousands of people from the face of the earth. But we have no way of understanding what the wrath of God was like in this flood but you can still see mercy. In verse three, God says that they will have 120 years and God will withhold his wrath for that time so that maybe some will repent and turn. In that time, Noah is building a boat for something that has never before been seen. He is in faith looking to the future and listening in obedience to what God has told him to do. And every time he hammers a nail, every time he builds a floor, he is proclaiming to the watching world the righteousness of God. And God is allowing there to be time before his wrath comes. You also see this in the garden where God asks questions of Adam and Eve not because he's a poor detective searching for information and details, but because he is leading them hopefully into a path that will end in repentance. God comes to Cain and says, what have you done? Leading him to an opportunity to repent, but like them, no one else at Noah's time chose to repent and they were eliminated. A lot of people ask us, why we would leave a place like the Summit Church. Some of you may know of the Summit Church. Many of you do not know of the Summit Church. I've had the privilege of being a pastor there for 10 years now um, by the grace of God, and I'm not the lead pastor, so this has nothing to do with me, but by the grace of God, when I arrived, there were 400 people worshiping together in Northern Durham, and today, this weekend, there will be somewhere of 8,000 people gathering in Raleigh-Durham to celebrate Jesus. Over the past four weeks, we saw 414 people baptized as a response to the gospel. It is an amazing outpouring of God's work. And people say, why would you leave that? I'm not guaranteed to ever see something like that again. But I believe that when the scriptures say that there's one name under heaven by which we are saved, that it means there's one name. And you look at a city like Baltimore and you see that less than 9% of the population are evangelical Christians. Not that those are the only brand of Christians, but those are the only Christians through the census or through any other studies that will say, Jesus has saved me and I actually wanna go tell somebody about it. And we want to take the message of the gospel and as a team, plant a church that will demonstrate and declare the gospel to the city of Baltimore because we believe that God for this moment is withholding the wrath that is coming. 
and we want to reprioritize our life for the sake of the mission. You see, when God called Noah, there was no way that he went about life as normal. He didn't look at his property the same way, that little house that he built. He didn't look at his neighbors the same way. He knew what was coming and he reprioritized everything for the sake of being used by God to proclaim righteousness. I wonder for you, have your priorities changed at all? Have your priorities changed since you surrendered and bowed your knee before Jesus? Or are you going through life just the same way? There's no way for you to encounter grace and continue the same way as you were before. We see God's wrath and judgment. We also see sin unleashed. Lastly, let's look at man's response to God. Turn over to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, we see man's response to God. The scene that we look at and we take from is the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, one through nine. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is, the only, this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they, had pur- nothing they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Here we see that oftentimes rebellion follows grace. Rebellion oftentimes follow grace. Listen to their words. Come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. After God remembers Noah and brings his family off of the ark, he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If you've been here the last few weeks, you've heard that before. But these people chose to directly disobey that. They chose not to spread across the earth. They chose to gather together so that they could have some type of security together in their new city. And because they had one language, they thought they would build for themselves a tower, a tower that would get to God, a tower that would maybe meet God halfway, a tower that would be so great that it would make a name for themselves. Now more than likely when you leave here, you're not going to go to your backyard and continue the building project of your own tower. You probably don't have a ziggurat in your backyard that you are building day by day by day, having Lowe's or Home Depot bring you bricks so you can build a tower that meets God halfway. But don't miss this. The sin issue here is their pride. 
And the same is true for us, especially us who find ourselves claiming to follow Jesus in the South. Our pride often tells us that we don't need God's gift righteousness because we can actually work to earn God's righteousness on our own. We can come to church a few weeks in a row without skipping. We can put something in the sweet little offering buckets over here on the side and buy God off with our offering. We can maybe even serve the church. We can work our way to God. See how similar we are to those who are in Babel? If we stop to think about this and smell it for a second, it smells like works righteousness. It smells like the moralism that many of us struggle with in our day-to-day life. They were going to do this by building a ziggurat, a tower, and this is what the Lord says. The Lord came down to see their city and their tower. If you're reading like a human, there's some sweet sarcastic irony right there. They were going to build a tower that was gonna make it to God, but God actually had to come down from heaven to see it. It's like my daughter coming home from art class with her finger painting of a duck, comparing it to the Mona Lisa. It's, it just doesn't, it doesn't add up. They were creating at the center of their city a tower that would reflect their local religion. And rather than waiting on God to come down and meet them, which will happen just in a few weeks for you, Exodus 19, they thought they would meet him halfway. They said, let us build a city, let us build a tower, let us make a name for ourselves. But God says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language. So the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. Do you see this? God is sovereign and will accomplish his purpose even when we are not willing, even when we are not aware. God said, fill the earth and God scattered them to fill the earth. Now there's something about filling the earth. God wanted the earth to be filled with his image bearers that would go and worship him. It's not as though God was lonely and God wanted someone to meet him over in Maui so they could hang out and be together. That's not it. God wanted his image bearers to fill the earth for there to be seen beauty and diversity, beauty in various cultures, beauty in people of all people, tribes and tongues and races and nations coming together to worship him. And I want to con- just draw this connection for you. Robert may get upset at me for getting into the New Testament, but I don't care. We're going to do this anyway. Genesis 11, you see that the people gather together to build a name for themselves, and God scatters them and confuses their language. In Acts chapter 2, if you know this story, at Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' ascension, you see that there are devout men from every nation under heaven. And they're gathered in a city, Jerusalem. And God in his grace, through the power of his Holy Spirit, enables his apostles to speak the gospel to them in such a way that every man heard it in his own tongue. And from there, he scattered them again, not in judgment, but as his ambassadors of the good news. Then in Revelation chapter seven, you see another crowd that gathers together. And like Chris said in his small group experience, I won't get through this without crying. Revelation seven, nine says, after this I looked 
Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, every tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb. We're gathered together in a new city with a new name, the name of the Lamb of God that was slain for our sins with white robes, not that we created for ourselves, but that reflect the gift righteousness of Jesus that is given freely to us under one name, not building a name for ourselves, but surrendered to the name of Jesus Christ. So what you see is God's wrath and judgment in Genesis 11, if you hold on just a little bit longer, you'll see God's sovereignty and God's desire that none would perish, but they would all come to know him. Some of you came to this city to build a name for yourself. I think Sinatra said it best when he said he wants to wake up in a city that never sleeps, to find that he is king of the hill. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Some of you wanna be king of the hill in education. Some of you wanna be king of the hill because you got a promotion and you're doing well in your business. Some of you wanna be king of the hill in something that's really, really good for our culture and your community like medicine. And if you've never experienced some dissatisfaction of a life given to making your own name, you probably won't listen to anything I say. But if you've ever tasted or experienced the reality that making a name for yourself does not satisfy, hear this, there is a name above all other names that you can be identified by and that name is Jesus. If you're taking notes, I just wanna ask you to put your pen down because at this point it's not about me regurgitating or pontificating information to you. At this point it's about us worshiping Jesus. Jesus is better. Jesus is the better able because in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 24, we hear that Jesus' blood is better than Abel's. Abel's blood cried out to the Lord for vengeance. Jesus' blood that was shed for you on the cross does not cry out for vengeance, it cries out for your salvation. Jesus is the better ark. Jesus is not your little help me along to keep you above the flood waters as some preachers preach to you today and gather crowds with. Jesus drowned in the wrath of God's flood so that you and I would not have to. Jesus humbled himself. You see, it says that Jesus came down to the city of Babel it's not the only time Jesus came down. Jesus came down again when he took on flesh. And scriptures teach us that he was born into a world full of canes and he was murdered. His blood was shed, but he was the first fruits of God's resurrection and restoration. You don't have to struggle to make a name for yourself because there is a better name and that name is Jesus. So for the next two or three minutes, we're going to leave you in silence just to allow you to kind of sit here and soak on this some. 
Maybe you want to read back through some of these passages. Maybe you want to jot down a few notes. Maybe you just want to pray. But you take this time to ensure that what you've heard this morning doesn't come and go, that you can take it with you and continue on your process and your journey in grace.